Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Welcome to this post-election town hall, a special presentation of the Commonwealth Club's week-to-week political roundtable. Uh, we're very glad you're all here. It's a full room. People are watching us live on, online. Hi, Mom. Um, <laughs> it is now just a little more than a week since the election of Donald Trump as President of the United States. <laughs> Something that uh, this is the President-elect, yes. Well, he was elected as President. Uh, this is something that left Don't many... Don't rush it, she says. <laughs> We're just still going through grief. Well, exactly. Lots of folks, Republicans and Democrats and independents alike, many of them just surprised and even shocked. I like to remind people at times like this, people level head. So first, everyone, just take a breath. Breathe in. Breathe out. Tonight's program is going to be part discussion and education and part Lamaze class, so we'll get through this together. <laughs> Thanks for joining us here today in San Francisco. I'm John Zipper, your host for Week to Week and uh, the Commonwealth Club's Vice President of Media and Editorial. In this town hall, we will look at what happened. We'll look at what's happening even right now in Washington and New York, and we will try to talk about what can happen next, what to expect, and what you can do. Now, I know San Francisco and the Bay Area well enough to safely guess that probably most of you, many of you, are uh, Democrats or Democrat-leaning, but I also know there are Republicans here, um, both of the never-Trump variety and uh, Trump supporters. You're all welcome here. The Commonwealth Club is a home for everybody, and uh, I would ask that any comments made uh, here in this forum obviously keeps everyone in mind. Um, As for us up here on stage, any opinions that are expressed are those solely of the speakers and not of the Commonwealth Club. Now let's meet our panelists tonight. We're going to start here on my left with Melissa Kane. She's a political analyst at CBS San Francisco, and you can follow her on Twitter at MelissaCane1. And on my right, for the first time on our week-to-week panel, is Jennifer Granholm. She's a former governor of Michigan, co-chair of the Clinton Presidential Transition Team, and she's a political contributor to MSNBC. She's on Twitter at Jen Granholm. So there are question cards spread throughout the room. Please use them to write down and send forward some questions. I will do my best to ask as many as I can during our hour here together. We also uh, look forward to, well, actually, I know you've already uh, had a chance to talk to each other out in the, uh, during the social hour, Um, but we'll try to share as much of our hopes and fears and uh, information about what's actually going to happen. Um, So let's go on to the round table. And and first, I want to start this conversation by uh, asking for your reactions and thoughts on what happened last week, and let's start with you, Governor Granholm. Um, when did you first realize that Donald Trump was going to win the election? Um, like many people, I learned it, well, I learned about it, I was at the Javits Center in New York um, on election night, and um, I was merrily 
doing my thing, going on TV at 9 o'clock at night, saying, oh, yeah, we're still going to win. Michigan's looking good. And um, it wasn't until I saw uh, Nate Silver's projection go from whatever it was, 65% likely to like 5% likely that I realized, oh, you know, we lost Florida. I felt, okay, we could still do this, you know. And uh, when we lost North Carolina, I was like, mm. when we were having trouble in Virginia, uh, really, I was really getting nervous. And, um, but it was at that Nate Silver moment, even though Nate Silver got it wrong too, <laughs> right? um, that I realized, oh my God, this is actually happening. And I was not the only one who realized at that moment. It wasn't like there were some secret internal you know, polls that showed she was going to lose. You know, I mean, we knew it was going to be closer than it was going to, than it would have been before, like the Jim Comey letter, the second one that dropped. But um, it was that it was that night yeah. realizing that the, you know, the the, t- the tinfoil confetti or whatever it was that was supposed to be the facsimile of the glass coming down um, mm-hmm. was not going to come down. It was um, it was a really and I'm sure for many of those in this room, it was a really hard and harsh realization. Melissa Kane, you, of course, are part of the liberal media establishment. I'm sure you got all the secret information. From Lamestream media yeah. right um, here. What, what was it like? And, and when did you first realize this is what's happening? Well, so, you know, when, they, when the results start, I was in the newsroom. And, of course, the results start coming back. And it's, it's commonly the case that... Uh, the initial results are skewed more conservative, right? Because the places that count quicker, quicker basically, are, are smaller towns and more rural places that often are able to get those results in quicker. So it's not uncommon to get some sort of rightward-leaning results that come in first. So it starts happening in the newsroom, and everyone's looking at me. What's going on? I'm like, ah, it's fine. You know, when the cities haven't weighed in yet, when they, you know, when you get to right, the larger right. places where there's more people, <clears throat> yep. it just takes longer to count. It'll be fine. So we're going, going, and yeah, and so Virginia's looking close, North Carolina's looking close, and um, Pennsylvania is even yeah. even looking close. What's and we were actually on, on set. We were uh, doing, uh, it was myself and Phil Mateer and the two anchors were chatting about sort of what's happening, and here's the results that are coming in. And as they're coming in, we get word that Wisconsin has now been called. And that was it for me, because I, you know, you know, she doesn't get, at that point, she needed Wisconsin and Michigan, and she, without Wisconsin, like that was kind of it. And I actually said, without Wisconsin, there's almost no way to do this. And about two seconds later, Podesta comes out. And so we immediately cut to Podesta coming on stage at the Javits Center saying, everybody go home. Uh, The fight's not over. Um, So then we start chatting about that. And just like immediately after that, the anchor next to me, and we're on TV live, says, and we're just getting word that Hillary Clinton has called Donald Trump to to concede the race. And it was just like, be cool. (laughs) You know, don't freak out. You're on camera. So having to go through that experience uh, right there, trying not to betray anything uh, like surprise was, uh, was, <laughs> was a little difficult. But it was a, it was a crazy thing to, mm-hmm. to sort of see these, uh, these dominoes fall the, the way that they did uh, when all night we had just sort of been thinking, oh, well, as soon as the cities, as soon as urban areas come in, it will turn. But it didn't. Uh, you know Hillary Clinton personally. Um, how do you think? Do you think she knew it up to the last minute? Or? No, I think, I think, honestly, we were all totally stunned. I mean, really. So I was the co-chair of the transition team, right? And uh, 
And don't even get me started about Donald Trump's transition. But anyway. We'll, we'll get there. Yes, let's. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we, were, we were totally, and, and perhaps I, am more, I was more so in the mindset of, you know, we got this because I've been focused full time on what would be happening after the election, right? Not, and I mean, I had a leg in both camps, but really my, my primary focus was how to set up a government after the election. And so, um, so I don't think, I, I, I know, n we just did not know. We just did not know. We knew it might be closer than what all uh, on my team had been hoping. Um, you know, initially we were hoping we'd take the House. There was a moment where mm -hmm. we fantasized. I mean, the Senate, we, the moment we fantasized we might be able to take the House too. That was before the, the Comey stuff. But, but nonetheless, we thought it was going to happen, and we, we thought we would be taking the Senate as well. But um, it was not. It, it did come down to where we were all, whether you were watching Fox or MSNBC or CNN, you were all watching Michigan and Wisconsin. Um, which is great because I'm from Wisconsin. She's the former governor of Michigan. Um, when you were kind of watching it, you know how they start breaking down, well, this county, yeah. uh, you know, and this one has, did all of that ring true that the, the talking heads, sorry, on TV were at least in, pointing to kind of the, the right yeah, yeah, areas? Yeah, no, they were absolutely pointing to the right, uh, the right things. And, but, but Wayne County, which is the county in which Detroit sits, that's the county that always comes in last. It always comes in last. And it's always overwhelmingly Democratic. And, you know, I had my people, I was talking to my people on the ground, you know, how does it look? Are there lines? I mean, what are you feeling? And um, my, my sister-in-law actually was doing those, you know, drive arounds in Detroit, making sure that people, she says, I see lines, I feel good about it. She said, but the campaign manager told me just to be a little bit cautious in telling you to be super positive about the numbers coming out of Detroit, because we're, we're just a little tentative. So, and I was talking to her just before I'd gone on the air because I didn't want to be like, oh, we got this. You know? <laughs> and so I said, you know, well, the numbers are looking a little slow. I mean, we'd seen, you know, reports of the Wayne County numbers being down, the numbers in Detroit being down. And it turns out, you know, in uh, that she got um, 77,000 fewer votes in Wayne County than Barack Obama got in 2012, 77,000 votes. And they're still counting in Michigan. And it's between, it's around 12,000 that she lost the state by. And she got that 77,000 fewer votes. It's not that those votes went to Donald Trump. They just didn't show up. So there's a, there's a lesson there for Democrats, I think. And then the other piece of Michigan, mm -hmm. which of course was the overwhelming surge in the rural counties and the outstate counties, obviously Macomb County, we knew was going to go to um, Donald Trump, but but um, but this is the other delta that was tr that is troubling, and it's replicated both in, in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in Ohio. Um, it's the the fact that in uh, in 2012, Barack Obama lost the non-college educated white voters by 19 points. So we didn't win them, we lost them by 19 points. And Donald Trump won them by 39 points. Oh. So there was a 20 point delta there that we lost by. So those two things, the not showing up and the fact that's, that we lost those white non-college educated voters by so much, that is the explanation in, in the upper Midwest, I think.
I uh, don't have as many contacts in Wisconsin because I wasn't the governor. <laughs> I like to think I'm a future governor, but I'm, just, I'm not announcing just yet. But uh, my mo- I'm actually from Green Bay, Wisconsin, which is kind of, a, if you will, in a swing county in a swing state. Um, and they, they went for Trump. And my mother uh, ran a polling station at St. Paul's United Methodist Church. And uh, she said that you know, two days later, after she had finally gotten enough energy back, she said they normally get 300 people. And they had 800 people. Wow out of something like 1,031 potential, and that didn't include the mail-in and, and early voting. So they had a surge of voting there, and uh, it certainly ensured... And, and that's interesting, too, because the early, the early voting... I mean, Michigan, for example, doesn't have early voting, but it has early absentee voting. So you could do... You know, they, they do a lot of ballot chasing, um, but you have to have a reason why you're not showing up at the polls. So it's not no reason absentee unless you're a senior. But nonetheless, they have a lot of them out. And Democrats had by far swamped Republicans in the early voting. And that was true. That was true even in Iowa. And we lost Iowa by such a huge uh, amount. So it was deceptive, all the early voting stuff. And there's a question about whether we cannibalized the vote, right, by having it go early rather than on Election Day. But all the indications were not what the result was. One, one of the questions from the audience is one I want to put to you. When people have looked at you know these the big cities and areas where you would expect the African American vote, the Hispanic vote, um, to come out, and they often are, or since then have been asking, okay, was this voter suppression? Did all these motor voter laws and all these other things, or not lack of motor voter laws, uh, and registration requirements, did that keep down the vote in certain areas? Do you think so, or is that kind of a, a it, it may have to to a small degree, but I'm not sure it would it did to uh, to an extent that the vote would have been different. Okay. You know what I mean? Like to, enough. There were a lot of lawyers standing by on like one eight hundred lines. Both parties had like a you know one eight hundred Republican, one hundred Democrat, basically to call and report irregularities at the polls. We do know that there was some confusion in places like Connecticut and Texas who have new. Uh, voter ID laws, and so that was being reported, but um, so far, so I just mean, had there been something that was so overwhelming that it would have changed the, the direction of the election, it ch- the, the winner would become the loser, uh, I think we would have heard of it, because again, there, were, there was a lot of resources on both parties put to this, um, and while we did get some reports of some confusion and some problems, uh, you know, it, nothing has so far risen to the level of, of actually changing the outcome. Uh, at this point, I don't know if you... I, I totally disagree. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I think, I mean, there's so many complicated factors, yeah. right? And I, I don't know whether it would have changed the electoral vote because she, you know, in um, North Carolina, for example, we do know that the polls, the early voting was cut off by a week. They uh, reduced the number of polling stations. They finally opened it up. There was a big surge, but you don't know, right, how many were not cut off. But in the in the states that were used to be monitored under the Voting Rights Act, there were 868 polling sites that were shut down. 868 polling sites. So, you know, for if you're not hugely motivated, hugely motivated, um, then that could be, you know, you might decide. I mean, especially, I would say, for students. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. 
We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care serving your community. For students, if it's not easy, you know, and they don't have transportation and all, you know, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, then it, it becomes really uh, tough. I mean, in Wisconsin, she lost by 27,000 votes. I don't know what the numbers were out of Madison, et cetera. I would love yeah. to, I mean, obviously the 27,000 wouldn't have, uh, it wouldn't have been overcome by that much. But, but you know, I, I, this incremental carving away or making voting difficult in all of these states, I think, has an impact. And I think it is, it is wrong. It is anti-democratic. It is anti-American to, to deny people the ability to exercise the franchise. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, to, be, to be clear, what I was talking about was unlawful activities, like actually, you know, people being prevented from from voting by somebody at the poll. And, and there, there were worries about that leading up to it, that there were going to be the, oh, yeah. the armed monitors, if you will. Um, and I don't recall seeing any reports of that actually happening. Did either of you? I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think both sides had poll watchers yeah. that sort of, you know, stand off, <laughs> you know. Okay. Um, well, let's, let's get into more specifically some of these, I was going to say hopes and fears, but I think many people, it's been mostly fears lately. Uh, since the election, have had about what is going to happen, what could happen. Um, and uh, uh, let's just kind of, I mean, you can, there's a, a long list of them. Some of them came up during the election, issues of the treatment of women, uh, worries about, uh, I mean, there's now a lot of news stories about registration of Muslims, uh, obviously, you know, deporting millions of people, uh, uh, undocumented immigrants and, and such. So let's talk a bit about this. and. Um, I mean, where do you even start? I mean, there are a number of questions on all of those. How, and let's go to you because you've run campaigns your own and you've been involved in other campaigns and you've been obviously observing and commenting on, on politics for a long time. Um, how much of what Trump said during the campaign about some of these things do you think will carry through into actual implemented policy and how much of it was 
say whatever I need to do to get the vote. I hope none of it carries forward, but I worry that his supporters are going to hold him to it. And there's a lot of members of Congress that are among the, the you know, the anti-immigrant, for example, deport, deport people crowd. You know, I just, I, uh, did any of you see the Leslie Stahl interview uh, on Sunday night? So he seemed to be, um, you know, he's tried to come across as much more, you know, moderate or whatever. Oh, and, but, you know, underneath it all, he was basically saying, we are going to deport um, people with, uh, with criminal convictions. And not, not to mention, I mean, he, there's no distinction there that the people who, who, some people who may have criminal convictions, the criminal conviction is just coming across the border. And that's the conviction as opposed to some murdering somebody or something like that. I don't think any of us would have a problem with that. But, but if your only conviction is coming across, then, you know, what's going on here? So, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there are many in this room who have family or friends that are in the population of undocumented. And this is really existential. I mean, all of these kids who are in schools who are crying. My, my daughter works at a bilingual school, and she, I can't even talk about it really because it's so upsetting. She's so upset for these kids and for the staff and for everybody who feels like, oh, my God, I'm going to be ripped out or my parents are going to be ripped out of their home. I mean, it's so horrible. Anyway, I, I don't mean to recite all of the parade of horribles. I'm just saying that I worry that he's got to follow through on a couple of these things. And I hope that he doesn't follow through on almost anything he pledged during the campaign. <laughs> um, how many of you are concerned about Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act? I mean, that's something they're already you know, promising to do something about, and Congress has, has jumped on that. Do you know what we can expect from that? I mean, what can be done? I mean, what's realistic? Well, so there are a couple of things. So there's there's sort of what politically he could do and what sort of actively he could do. I mean, right now there's a a, a lawsuit uh, that's pending in a you know a circuit court where Congress sued President Obama, saying the executive order authorizing some funding, authorizing federal funding uh, or federal incentives for some insurance companies uh, is illegal because it was through an executive order and not it didn't go through Congress, right? There's that lawsuit. So um, the the Congress basically won at the lower court, and then President Obama appealed it. Now, President Trump could come in and just drop the appeal. And then all of a sudden, you now have imperiled uh, some federal funding, some federal subsidies, basically, to some insurance companies. So there, it, it can be as easy as that, as filing a, hey, we drop our appeal. Yeah. Uh, and then it can be as complicated as, uh, you know, trying to phase out Obamacare and trying to phase in something a little more, uh, a little more palatable. Um, I was listening, there was one expert on NPR this morning who was saying that we probably won't see any real changes until... 2019, that we kind of have a funding structure in place that's probably going to carry us through, unless Republicans are really interested in just throwing a lot of people off of endurance, which I, I think even Donald Trump isn't, uh, then uh, then they'll probably start moving to in a different direction in uh, in 2019, so that we're probably pretty safe. Not safe. Uh, there's something resembling Obamacare will be in place uh, until then. And, that's and politically, they don't want to do anything before the 2018 mid that would make it look like they're heartless. Exactly. I mean, you can imagine, like, the... You can imagine you know the stories saying, right? uh, that would come out. So you could do, it could be as quick as day one, filing a, hey, we're not appealing anymore, 
to uh, you know to an, a gradual implementation. But to your point, I think they will probably opt for a gradual implementation because even people who don't like Obamacare, you know, like some parts of it that they want to try to uh, try to keep together. But you know, that raises an interesting issue for for Democrats, right? I mean, do you uh, fully cooperate on that, or do you sort of dig in your heels and say, you know, no changes? And that's something the Democrats in the Senate at least still have some ability to do because it's not a Republicans don't have a filibuster-proof majority over there. Yeah, I mean, and the, and the Democrats were proposing to make some changes to make uh, to shore up Obamacare. There's always some stuff you can do to make it better. But to me, what kills me is they want to keep you know the the candy and 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 get rid of everything else, right? But it doesn't it doesn't hold up that way, right? You can't have people stay on your health care till they're 25 to have young people stay on, and you can't um, have everybody with pre-existing conditions stay on without having a big pool of people to be able to pay for that, right? And the mandate is what creates the big pool of people. So it just, it doesn't, you can't have your, you know, your dessert without your vegetables. So <laughs> it's just, it's not going to, I mean, and of course there's no, other than um, saying that they want to eliminate the um, geographic barriers of states so that you can buy insurance across state lines, which doesn't get you to what you need to get in terms of the size of the of the actual pool, if you've got competition, it it um, they haven't said what they would do to replace it, and it, because it's hard. One thing that uh, could affect us here in San Francisco uh, specifically, uh, fairly significantly on the financial side, is the controversy over sanctuary cities. Mm -hmm. Speaking of promises uh, he had made during the campaign, one of them was to you know end federal. Uh, Payments to cities for things that were for cities that were sanctuary cities. Um, San Francisco, of course, famously is one, uh, as Chicago and New York and and, and many others are. Um, what do you think that's something he? I mean, it's what was it about a billion dollars that San Francisco would lose? I think one of the other cities was like five billion dollars that they could lose. Are those too big a numbers for him to go through with on that thread? Do you think or? Does that make it so juicy he can't stay away from it? I honestly think, I mean, his predilection, he's, he's an authoritarian figure, right? Which means that you, if you're an authoritarian, meaning um, that you like a police state, you like authority, you like, right? I mean, that's what building the wall, that's what um, making sure that we're all about law and order and all of that, building up a big military. So I think that eliminating um, sanctuary cities goes right in the, in the, in the heart of that. That's sort of on the one hand. On the other hand, and, and on that one hand, is that the sanctuary cities, a lot of them are in Democratic-leaning areas. And so who cares, right, if you're, if you're them? However, there is this really important thread inside of the Republican Party, which is a very, very much a, a federalist thread or a thread of, of states and local, uh, you know, allowing states to do and localities to do what they want. So it would be, it'll, this is one of the rifts, I think, inside of the Republican Party that we're going to be seeing play out uh, is how do you have, for example, the, the libertarian strand of the Republican Party coexist with the authoritarian strand of the Republican Party? They're inside of a container that makes it very unstable. And, and that's going to be a series of arguments I think you'll be playing out over the next four years. How do you think San Francisco would respond to specifically on sanctuary cities? I mean, you know, the, I mean, Mayor uh, Lee, and, and it's, it's actually something that the progressive. Really? How do you guys think we do? 
if Donald Trump said, <laughs> or his administration said, you guys got to start turning people over. Uh, here's the thing. Um, how do I say this? Say it. Uh, okay, here's So, look, immigration is, uh, is a federal authority, right? I mean, there's a lot of law to establish that that's sort of their bag. And you can't deputize, you can't make our cops into your, you know, ICE enforcers. And there's, there's a lot of cases that say that. Like, you can't, the federal government can't rely on, like, the sheriff to, like, do their job. Um, so, if you ask, uh, you know, Mayor Lee or Gavin Newsom or one of these guys, they'll tell you, look, we've written our sanctuary city laws to make them very, very specifically, like, conform to the requirements just that we just do enough and do, like do not they do the hand singles and not and not really more uh so it's uh <laughs> on the one hand so you're on the one hand he's you know he maybe wants to teach a lesson or something like that but on the other it's kind of a mess like when you go in it actually is not as easy as like we'll just rip away the federal funding it really is kind of complicated and could result in tons and tons of lawsuits so if he can achieve what he wants to achieve in terms of locating criminals and deporting them at least to an extent that kind of gives his voters uh, an example of what they want uh, without messing with sanctuary cities and getting into that beehive of like what's constitutional and what's federal, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I think you might go for that. Um, and so it's not if unless the cities really start, you know, giving the finger basically to the Trump administration, which I think we've already kind of started doing. Uh, I don't know that he's going to want to get into it, but if he does want to, it's, you know, that's certainly a lever that he can start trying to pull. But, uh, but I, I don't know that he's eager to jump into that fight if he can achieve what he wants without, without it. What happens? I'm just curious uh, because I don't know the you know, inner workings here so much. How, what does the mayor say if faced with a loss of a billion dollars? I mean, if that's really the amount, yeah. and presumably that might leverage you know, some others, uh, what, does, what does he say, do you think? Well, our budget is about nine billion. So, I mean, that's not so the insignificant. The loss of a billion is um, a big chunk. But that's you know that's more than a lot of countries. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> um, but actually, so far the money that they've threatened to to keep from us is about a million. Actually, it's, oh. a, it's federal grant. I know. It's like what? <laughs> that's a rounding that's like error. The post-it budget. <laughs> we'll give you that. I mean. Oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's if it's a billion, want, that's fine. We'll just send that right back. Um, because because usually it's not like all funding is going to get pulled. Usually the threat and the threat previously that we've seen is that you're going to pull grants from the federal government to to for law enforcement. And so the grants that we get from the federal government for law enforcement add up to about a million dollars for San Francisco. That number is far larger for the state of California as a whole. So the state would have uh, a different issue. You know, there's legislation at the state level that you know they may want to tinker with if, uh, because there might be a, a bigger loss at that level. But from our local level, it's, it's only a mill. Oh, that's, that's some highlighters. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody. And that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. 
running gay clubs, it changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. Uh, so, uh, but, but if he was really to pull all federal funding completely, that, that would be um, something really significant. But again, I think it's something that it's worth, it would be something that they would wade into very powerfully into, into legal issues uh, to protect. If I were a Muslim woman, should I be scared? Yeah, I, I think if you're a Muslim, you should be scared because of this, you know, push to register people. I think that is, again, another example of sort of the authoritarian state, right? Um, and I think if you're a woman, you should be scared because uh, he's going to appoint a Supreme Court um, member that's going to overturn Roe versus Wade. Now, I hope that the Democrats um, filibuster uh, and say that's not... That's not acceptable. This is state, you know, established law, but um, you know, not every Democratic member of the Senate is going to be standing up with that, perhaps. So it's just a real. I I think if you're uh, a woman or if you're a, a Muslim, uh, there's reason to be afraid. Well, and and it also seems like just from reports that we're hearing that uh, there have been a, it, there's been an increase in in crimes or assaults on uh on muslims on on yeah. muslim women in particular uh so people some some people feel emboldened by the by the, the the victory of trump that they feel like they're uh they can be more public with their feelings and that they're now that you know there's you know millions of others feel like they do maybe so uh we've seen you know we've seen an increase in in those kinds of uh interactions so for that reason and, well. in schools and all of that i mean people who feel emboldened this is what's so disturbing about Having uh, a presidential um, president-elect who is not who is not willing to get up and and make a, a really affirmative statement, as opposed to just answering a question, making an affirmative statement about who we are as a nation, and this is not acceptable. It is not acceptable to bully people. It is not acceptable to go after people. If you're really if you're really a, a leader of all of us, it seems to me it would be really wise for him to get up and make a speech about how important it is to respect all Americans, respect all, respect all people who live in our borders instead of, instead of um, sort of tacitly allowing this to happen, especially in light of the appointment of Steve Bannon as his chief strategist, because that sends a signal as well. You know who could give that speech really well? Barack Obama. Yeah. <laughs> um, along those lines, someone in the audience asks, if any type of registration is attempted to be instituted, would flooding that system work to neutralize it? 
actually have been folks saying, if they try uh -huh. to do it, everyone should go in and say, yes, I'm Muslim. That's awesome. I love that. I love that. <laughs> I'm going to do that. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that idea. <laughs> Isn't it? We've given you one useful thing to do tonight. That's really, I, um, it makes me happy thinking of that. <laughs> well, during, okay, I was going to make a World War II reference. Let's, let's deal with that thing that people have been, been throwing around online. We're not dealing with Adolf Hitler right now in the White House. We're dealing, or potentially in the, soon to come to the White House. Can we describe what he is and why that's dangerous and why we don't have to go to the Hitler uh, reference, but still be something that would concern many people? Am I making sense? What do you mean? Maybe you can describe it. <sighs> yes. Um, there's been a lot of, oh my gosh, we've just elected Hitler, and uh, you know, all these things. Well, this is how the Nazis got into party. Well, it's not, but you know, it's social media. Um, and, I, and my point, I guess, is kind of people who are concerned about what could happen under Donald Trump presidency, by going to an extreme worry, are maybe missing you know, some of these things that we've kind of been talking about here, actual laws that could be implemented that might, be, might not be, you know, the enabling act, but that could still be things that, uh, you know, erode institutions of the Dem democratic uh, republic. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I understand people's, uh, people seeing these signals, you know, including the appointments of people um, that, that have tendencies in that direction um, to extrapolate, right? This is obviously going to lead to, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, but I do think that there are really, um, you know, I, I think that his the authoritarian nature of his, you know, of his uh, candidacy and his now presidency, um, or at least the what he has said he would do. I mean, I would just look at what he said he would do. And that to me, um, you know, it does it does cause cause you to worry, not that he's Hitler, but that, he, that there is going to be a very heavy-handed state. When he attacks the media, for example, and, um, you know, when they were all in the pen, you know, as they were at every rally, and people come up to the pen and yell Lügenpresse, which is, means lying press in German, is what uh, Hitler used to sort of create a state-run media as opposed to a free press, you know, there's you can understand why people are concerned about it, right? When you, when you see a lot of the, the language that's being used at those, at those rallies. Now, hopefully, that is all behind us. But I, I would say this. I, I am, I'm concerned about um, the vi what appears to be a willingness to violate what are norms of democracy. For example, um, the fact that for 40 years we've had presidents turn over their tax returns. Now, I know everybody's been talking about that forever, but now he's in the office, right? And you know that he's got 400 companies across the globe. And the conflicts of interest that are embedded in that, the potential anyway, is just so enormous. And yet, the lack of transparency, you know, I mean, they're, they're basically saying that you're never going to see his, his tax returns. This thing about the audit is, you know is a, a sort of a ruse. You're just not going to see his tax returns. So, so the fact that there's no transparency, and you don't know whether the foreign policy is for sale or not, 
That's, that's disconcerting to me, that lack of transparency. Um, the, the fact that, um, that there may be some nepotism involved in the appointments, um, you know? That's, and that's in violation of rules, but what is happening? Or that, that children may be getting super top secret clearance, you know, and they're running the business. You know, all of that is really icky. And, and so to me, it, when I say it's violating the norms, it's violating the norms of allowing us to see what's really happening so we can evaluate. Maybe there's nothing there. But we can, then it just leads us all to fantasize about what is happening, right, without that, without that openness. So, so, you know, Hitler, obviously, that's an emotional reaction for people to say that, and he's not Hitler. But, but you can understand why people are concerned about the actions and words that he has taken in the past and what they will mean in the presidency. Um, along the lines of your comments on the press, as well as violating norms, I want to read a quote from Megyn Kelly. She was interviewed on uh, CNN's uh, program with Anderson Cooper. And she has a new book out, but of course you all remember she famously kind of became the target of criticism of Donald Trump during the, during the primaries, right? Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I think it was the first debate. Mm -hmm. um, so she tells Anderson Cooper that, quote, Michael Cohen, who is Trump's top lawyer and executive vice president with the Trump Organization, had retweeted, quote, let's gut her, unquote, about me. This is Megyn Kelly saying this. At a time when the threat level was very high, which he knew. And Bill Shine, an executive vice president at Fox, called him up to say, quote, you've got to stop this. We understand you are angry, but she's got three kids and is walking around New York. And he didn't much care. What Bill Shine said to Michael Cohen was, quote, let me put it to you in terms that you can understand. Megyn Kelly gets killed is not going to help your candidate, unquote. Um, I mean, I said is... is Let's gut her? What does that mean, like, offer? Uh, like... What? You do to a deer, yeah. Um, so I said, should a Muslim woman be scared? I mean, should... Megyn Kelly be scared? Megyn Kelly should press be scared? Uh... Well, you know, it's a it's a strange phenomenon. At the Republican convention, we were in a pen, like you are, uh, over on the side. And it's weird, because I'm so excited to be there. Uh, you know, we're all, like, in our nerdy way. Like, so interesting. Um, and then, you know, at various times, speakers come up, and they point to us, and everyone turns, and ooh, you know, it's kind of like Pete's dragon, you know, guilty. And you're like... <laughs> uh, and, and yet... After the speakers were, were done or in between speakers when you wanted to go out to the floor and chat with people and like get their interviews, they were so nice. Uh, and I thought it was because I was like, because it's a Bay Area press and I was like, I'm going to get punched <laughs> multiple times. So, uh, but no, but you go out there and you chat and, and everyone's just like, oh yeah, we'll chat with you and we'll talk to you. And they were super cooperative and eager to, uh, to be interviewed. Um, so it's what, on, in mass, it seems like there's, there's all this anger, but the truth is if you get them one-on-one, uh, -on -one, they were actually um, pretty cordial. So, uh, look, that's a very, that's a crazy uh, situation. Oh, although I'll tell you a story. This is weird. The other day we were, um, on, I just finished a story. We're coming back to the station and we're about to enter the Broadway tunnel to go down to Telegraph Hill where we, we the station is. And, um, and this guy standing on the corner just like ran, and by the way, it's a white van. Like it was just, you could tell it was a news van because of the satellite, but it didn't, they didn't know it was Channel 5. They just, who, whatever, some news van, and he just like flips us off, like the whole way, just standing there on the corner, just giving us the bird, and we were like, "That's new." Uh, <laughs> okay. Probably thought you were KGO, so um, it's okay. 
gonna go with that explanation <laughs> and not just a generalized hatred of media. So, uh, so, so far, uh, I'm not sure if it's, you know, that it's turned into actual, you know, threats of violence against individuals. It seems like more something that people kind of in groups get together and like to, like to feel uh, good about yelling at. Although it is, it is weird. It's disconcerting. I have members of my own family who I get into debates with because they've seen something on YouTube that is contrary to something that regular news is reporting. And I'm like, hey, but because a guy on YouTube, um, <laughs> and then there's you know, like CBS or NBC. And then there's like the guy on YouTube <laughs> and he's choosing like the guy on YouTube. <laughs> and that's odd. <laughs> and I'm not sure where we're going to go with all that. We could have a whole one of these about like, uh, you know, media and, and truth and all that sort of thing. But, uh, but, but that, uh, so far has been the, the bigger, scarier thing is mm. having debates again with people who I've known my whole life about who's telling the truth, me or the guy on YouTube. Um, well, once again, so I'd like to welcome everyone who's watching our live stream on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently I am the guy on YouTube. <laughs> well, I, I, you, you, you kind of hinted at this earlier. I want to talk about the transition. Um, it has been... We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. Colorful. Who was going to be what? Can you just tell us like who was going to well, be okay. oh, so, like, so, I know, they've been calling me uh, and telling me. The governor <laughs> was the co-chair of Clinton's transition team. I mean, how much did you have prepared even before the election. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I mean, the the business of transition, just to give you what a normal transition would look like, right? So um, you you really start pretty skinny because you're respectful of the fact that you're not in office yet, right? And so we, our transition team sort of kicked into gear in in August. And so, and and Trump's actually with uh, Governor Christie, I think, 
in May even. He was they were oh, wow. pretty early. What the and in DC they give you a there's a whole uh, two floors of a building. Trump's got a floor and we had a floor of the same building. So you had to be careful when you went up in the elevator that you weren't, you know, giving away state secrets. But, um, but they were really secure. It's the General Services Administration. There was a law that was passed and they have to make space available for the transition teams. So the, the transition teams themselves, we had a fantastic team, super great smart people and you have to work both on policy so making sure you take whatever your candidate says policy wise and then say how it's going to be adopted right so you you ask the right questions about how you take this into make this reality so all of the policies and hillary clinton had a gajillion policies and we had to figure out to triage them what were the first ones to tee up she wanted to do the 100 day jobs plan etc that was my sort of lane was to do was to work on that set of policies and then you have a whole team that is working on what the white house is going to be structured as and look like who's going to be taking what particular position do you have you know the ceq do you have all these little agencies do you, do you reevaluate it and then you have a team that's working on what is known as agency review and that's what you're hearing about right now with the trump team there's if you've been watching tv you've heard that the pentagon is waiting for them to land because they've got to show them everything that happens and so you're you know we had 400 people all signed up, ready to go, all volunteers who were going to go into the agencies on November 9th. We had, we had it all ready to go. You know, we had people signed up. We had, you know, we had a whole training that was set. They were going to be given their equipment. The key was going to turn. We were going to, it was like clockwork. It was going to be amazing. And um, so it's so interesting too, because I wonder what they were doing. Um, <laughs> only because of what you're not hearing, you know? Right. I mean, I don't, I, you know, the fact that, um, that Trump went into the White House and met with the president and, um, and, and they were asking, well, how many of these people are going to stay? Well, they're, they're all gone, <laughs> all of them. You've got to populate the White House with people who are going to be carrying out the business in addition to everybody in the agencies. There are 4,000 appointments that you have to make. And so there's a whole appointments team that's on, that's on the transition, in the transition world. So anyway, it's just very interesting to me that uh, it, it, it made me think, because at one point in the elevator overheard was um, two of the Trump people talking and one saying to the other, yeah, I guess we're just winding down. And that was like, I want to say about uh, mid-October. And that was probably when her numbers were soaring, right? And they all felt like, Pfft. so I wonder if they sort of, you know, they too were as surprised uh, as we were, or at least maybe not as surprised, but they were surprised as well and maybe caught flat-footed a little bit on or, their preparation. Or maybe since they started in May, they had like a complete plan. And then in late October, they're like, oh, we're going to lose delete. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, Can't uh, call IT. Yeah. Um, now they're like, control Z. <laughs> What do you make out of what you're seeing? It, it does seem chaotic. Uh, I don't want to read too much into things like balloons. But um, on election night, when Donald Trump came out to give his victory speech, he comes on the stage, and there's no balloon. There's no confetti that looks like something. There's no band. It did not look like they were ready for a victory party. 
You know, like Pence comes out and he's like, you're president. He comes out and it's like, it looks like a, you know, like a PCA meeting. You know, it didn't look, and they were happy and enthusiastic, but I just mean like, it didn't look like they had the stuff, you know, you're supposed to have stuff. You know, where's the stuff? Uh, it look, and that's just, you know, again, don't read too much, but it did look like they were um, pretty surprised. Maybe not as surprised, but certainly, um, you know, had not, you know, ordered cupcakes and that sort of thing. Um, but it's, I mean, we're all sort of, no one knows which promises he's going to keep and which he's not, right? Even some of his supporters will tell you, oh, we right. don't think he's going to build the wall. Oh, we don't think he's going to really do that. Um, so no one, we're still trying to figure that out. And, and what's so um, breathtaking about this, these appointments and this transition team is uh, it gives us, it's helping to give us some indication. And that's why I think people were so disappointed with the Bannon appointment is that, you know, one of his very, you know, so he appoints Bryce Priebus and people go, oh, well, that's an establishment guy. And then Bannon. And you're like, what is that supposed to mean? And so as these appointments come through, he's giving a conciliatory tone on like CBS, but then he goes and, uh, and, uh, and we hear that like Giuliani is being considered. Giuliani like, was saying that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a rumor started by Giuliani. Uh, <laughs> and maybe, I don't know, that, that maybe he might be appointed to, to either attorney general. And now he's saying, you know, maybe he wants to be secretary of state. Um, and so, so, and then there's, so there's the, then there's those, but so I think that's, right, but you heard right at the end of today, right? That, that, uh, Mitt Romney, right? You heard that, right? That Mitt Romney is flying back in from Hawaii to be meeting with the president elect on Sunday about secretary of state. I'm going to pretend someone wrote this in as a question. Um, <laughs> in what, in what number or line of succession is the secretary of state? Uh, the third? third? I wanted I to say behind, third, too. Um, so Vice President, Speaker of the House, and, I want to say and then, okay. and then. Good question. Um, <laughs> from, uh, the, from the guy on asked that, what a brilliant question. Well, you, you mentioned uh, Steve Bannon. So Steve Bannon was the head of Breitbart, which is a, an alt-right uh, cheerleader, really. Um, and uh, he is now in a position that's he doesn't have to go through Senate confirmation, right? Right. I mean, he's really in a political position. Right. Um, he's the new Karl Rover, Dick Morris. Right. Of, yeah. Uh, someone asks, uh, do we think, well, can we expect him to remain there long, or do, do you think he might withdraw in, uh, because of the public reaction? Oh, no. Does anybody think that he's going to withdraw? He's been waiting for this for, for decades, right? This is, this is the dream of the alt-right, they are now right at the heart of the most powerful office in the world. Uh, did the last Comey letter uh, and the, the Wiener email fiasco um, hand the election to Donald Trump? And if not, how much did it close the gap? Someone asks. Really asks. I didn't make that one up. Um, I, I do think that the Comey, uh, whether it was the last letter or the second to last letter, mm -hmm. I think that the email thing, resurrecting it um, after she had, you know, the day after she had had a fabulous third debate um, caused, I mean, we saw where her numbers were. They plunged after that Comey thing, which turned out to be a big hairball of nothing. And, um, and I think it had an impact. I'd, and in fact, Corey Lewandowski today was bragging that the Comey thing actually gave them the election. Well, let me ask you, um, because this is a question actually quite a few times I've on these cards. Um, the Electoral College votes on December 19th. You know where this is going. Um, the, 
first, if I can ask you to keep it brief, because I want to get a couple more things before we break here. Um, why do we have a, in the Electoral College, and can or are they likely to change uh, the outcome of the election on December 19th? Okay, so let's answer the second question first. The, second question, the answer to the second question is no. Uh, and to be real short about it, here's why. Because the electors, who are these people? Um, uh, in around a mid-October, each candidate submits a list. So California, we have 55 electors. So each candidate submitted a list of 55 people. And then basically whoever wins, that list becomes the elector. So who gets to be on the list, right? These are people who are uh, really active in the party, people who volunteer, people who have held leadership positions. For example, one of the, the Democrat electors on the Clinton side is uh, Christine Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's daughter. So these are party loyalists. These are not people who are going to change their mind at the last minute necessarily. So in those states where there are Republican uh, electors, they're Trump, they're Trump campaign Republican, uh, you know, GOP picked folks. They were on the GOP list. And that's why they got to be electors. And so if you forget all the legality, which we've talked about here multiple times, forget the legal stuff. At, at its core, the folks that are going to be electors aren't the kind of people going to change their mind. And even a Republican who doesn't like Trump isn't going to write in Hillary Clinton. Let's face it, they'd rather vote for Donald Duck than, uh, than change their vote to Hillary Clinton. So that's part of the reason why between now and then you're not going to see electors, maybe one or two, but she would need, uh, you know, several, she'd need a... Uh, 38. More, yeah, 38 to, to actually... Uh, <laughs> just, kinda, just guessing. <laughs> she would need a lot more <laughs> than are probably going to do this. And so you may get one or two, but, but not enough to, to make a difference. So sorry about that, petition signers. Uh, that's not a thing. So uh, just quickly, why do we have the Electoral College? Uh, uh, it sucks because they're terrible because they hate us. Uh, if you go back to uh, the 1700s, go back to the, the Constitutional Convention, the reality back then wasn't what we have right now, right? People were more loyal to their state than they were to the federal. It wasn't like this integrated thing where you're like, I'm an American first and a Californian second. No, that was not a thing. Um, it was more like the EU, right? Everybody is little, all, Rhode Island was its own thing. And you got to get everybody to agree to this constitution. You're asking a state to give over a substantial amount of power to be part of this federation. Now, in order so, everyone has to sign. So you got to get the small states to sign. You got to get the slaveholding states to sign. And um, they were nervous. Basically, if you do a popular vote, right, then the, like, the big populous states at the time, like New York, were just going to steamroll you, right? And then New York, a New Yorker, was going to be the, oh, oh, whoops. Uh, <laughs> A New Yorker would always be the president, right? Because they had more people. And so you were going to get ignored, Rhode Island, um, or even Georgia, where you had lots of people, but fewer people who could actually vote. So one of, the, one of the concessions was to build an electoral college. Because if you think about it, the least amount of electors you can have is three. That's like, every, everybody gets at least three. And then, you, then it goes up from there. So a state like Wyoming, let's give you for example, there's one elector for every 200,000 people. In California, there's one elector for every 700,000 people. Okay, so but this was specifically done to keep a relevance for these rural areas, keep a relevance for these less populated areas or areas that with, with lots of slaves, for example. Uh, that's why it's built in, and that was what they did. It was kind of a concession to get the smaller states to sign because they did not want to just turn it over to a popular vote. If you think about it, you go to New York, L.A., San Francisco, Chicago, you know, some of these urban areas and like, boom, you got all the votes you need to win and you could ignore the rural areas. At least that's, that's the argument. But historically, that's why that was added to the Constitution. And that really perfectly matches what you were saying about in, if that wasn't there, there wouldn't be a need to, 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 to or a, an urgent need 
to address those concerns of the factory workers. You could say we don't need them. Right. And, well, uh, I, I would say I think the Electoral College is an anachronism now. And, Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipper, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.